because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome MHP Reason Ludwigsburg head coach Josh King to the basketball podcast. King led Ludwigsburg to the playoffs in each of the three seasons as an assistant coach. In his first season as head coach, he led the team to a record of 22 and 12 overall and 12 and 6 in conference play in 2022-23. King began his coaching career as an assistant coach at Vassar College, where he spent two seasons. He then moved on to become an assistant coach at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro for two seasons before joining the staff at the University of South Florida for three seasons. In 2015, King moved to Europe to become an assistant coach for Ludwigsburg. He spent three seasons with the team before being named head coach in June 2021. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Chris, I appreciate you having me on. Excited to talk to you. And uh, I know we just talked quick off camera, off air here, and uh, you're starting a little bit later than some of the other European teams in terms of practice. And that was really cool to hear your answer. So uh, explain that to us why you start a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, the European season is is very, very long. Uh, it's much longer than a traditional college season. It's even longer than an NBA season, not in terms of uh, games played, but in terms of time commitment to to the season. I think for us, you know, with speaking with our staff and our, and our president, it was better for us to give our guys a couple extra weeks at home. We don't have a players union, so we can kind of pick when we want to practice. But for us, it was important to give our guys extra time with their you know, friends and family before they come over and get started. And since we're going into this kind of beginning part of your season where you first get the players there. Fill us in a little bit. What are some of the things that happen when the players arrive and now you get them indoctrinated in terms of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it? Sure. Well, I, I think what most teams try to do over here is bring them over about a week before you start practice. So, you know, that's obviously up to each individual team. But for us, we bring them in. We started to bring them in this past Monday. Today is Thursday. We'll start Friday. So most guys come in on Monday. So it gives them three, four days to get acclimated to the time change. They have to pass medical checks. Uh, most guys are on, you know, just one-year contracts, so they have to pass medical checks, internal checks, and once they pass those and we get the okay, then they're able to practice. So the goal is to have everybody practice tomorrow, and use. I think we'll be be able to do that. And then once we we start practicing, we start basically uh, building our foundation. It's just like you, you know, clearing land, clearing space to build a house. Uh, the house doesn't go up. Uh, you don't see the final product for a while, and who knows when the final product is, right, Chris? You you want it to be not maybe at the beginning of the year, but you want it to be before the end of the year. And uh, we'll start clearing our land and space tomorrow. And we got a good mix of guys. You know, we, we've got seven Americans and six Germans, all the Germans back from last year. So we got a good foundation, but we have to start building tomorrow. What's curious, I think, is is, is in terms of your roster, you are the de facto general manager, so you have a good feel for who you're bringing in. But I'm curious at that level that you're coaching at, 
can you go into practice, your first practice, understanding what you're going to run? Or is that something that evolves over time as you get a real feel for how the unit works together and the individual talents of the players? Well, I think like any coach, any general manager, any coach that, that puts a team together, they have to have a, some type of idea of what they're going to run, how they want to play, what their system is uh, when you're recruiting players. Uh, when we're recruiting throughout the summer and even, you know, recruiting starts during the season, actually, the previous season. Uh, you have to be able to have an idea who can fit your system. We have a system. We have a philosophy. Uh, we have a little bit of a brand here. So we have an idea of what we want to do. But obviously, you have to adapt uh, throughout the season, whether that be injuries or maybe someone can't do maybe what you thought they could do. And uh, it's always it's always not an exact science. You got to be able to uh, adjust on the fly for sure. Well, and your philosophy and the way that your team plays, I mean, that's it's 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 pressing, it's positionless. So let's maybe start with positionless first. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean in terms of how you run your team? Sure. Positionless basketball for us is is basically I, I think right now we've got 13, we'll call them pros. We got some younger uh prospects, but 13 guys that'll be on our, our active roster from day one. And only two of those guys only play one position. We have a we have one guy that's only a point guard and one guy that's only a five man. All the other guys can kind of play any of these spots. That's something we recruit to. Uh, we want guys that can play multiple positions, obviously, because of the injuries, uh, because of the way we want to play. But we need guys that can go up and down the roster. It also gives us a different look. And, yeah, we, we, want, we want to be a, a team that's hard to guard. And we feel like if, if you've got the more positionless guys you have, the harder you are to guard. You've used the word recruit a few times. And I, I think for a lot of the American people that are listening, they maybe not understand so we met in Las Vegas and obviously you were there recruiting and that's not a term necessarily we associate with professional basketball. We associate it with college basketball. So give us an idea of what you mean by recruiting for the professional level. Sure. I mean, well, I, I was a college guy for a long time, so I still say recruit. I, I don't, uh, yeah. Scout, I guess scout would be the. No, the recruit's program. fine. Cause you still got to yeah. convince them to come. That's the thing. Sure. It's not just give them money and they come. It's you got to convince them. Yeah. Well, it, it, one thing we, we do have here in Ludwig's are, is we do have a, um, like I said, we have a brand. So that's part of the recruiting. You know, we've had a lot of guys come through here throughout the years, probably guys that you're not even well aware of. We had Royce, o not, not when I was here, but Royce O'Neill has been here. We had Keelan Martin, uh, Malcolm Hill. We had Jalen Smith, guys who come from, from small colleges. Um, we're, we're a lower budget team. Uh, we've had a lot of success, success throughout the year. So a lot of people think we, we got a much higher budget than we do. So we have to convince players to come here and play uh, as a stepping stone to get to where they want to be, whether that's a Euro league team or try to get back to the NBA. So that's, that's part of the a recruiting pitch because we've had a lot of guys come here throughout the years, but uh, yeah, we, we, we go, we use Las Vegas to, to, to meet with players, to meet with agents um, at that, at that time. It's not, it's not where we get all of our guys, but we do get uh, some guys in, in Vegas where we did meet. Yeah, it's great. And uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, development and uh, kind of looking at that from, you know, a lower mid-major in a sense, and you're convincing them to come there because they have a chance to go to their next level. Saying that, though, you're in one of the top leagues in Europe and one of the top leagues in the world. So the basketball is tremendous and you guys have had tremendous success. 
Is the pressing style one of those kind of equalizers for you guys as a lower budget team? Absolutely. In Germany, they say absolute. Uh, so I would say absolute. We don't have the budget that some of the bigger clubs in our league have. Obviously, we play Champions League. There's a lot of big budget teams at that level. With So we have to try to do something different to give us a competitive equalizer or advantage per se. And like you just said, uh, we're known for picking up 94 feet. Uh, I don't know how many meters that is. We'll just call it 94 feet on makes, dead ball situations. And yeah, we will play that way this year. We have, there's no secrets about it. That's, that's what we want to do. We want to get after our opponent. We want to make them uh, think about every possession they have and think about just bringing the ball up the floor. Um, that's something we'll work on almost from day one. Yeah, it's great stuff. You're a fun team to watch. And I've watched a lot of games over the years. And uh, you mentioned positionless basketball. Another philosophy is playing in the open court. So give us an idea of what that means. Yeah, we, we call it hockey. We want to play hockey. I mean, I'm, I'm not a really big hockey guy, but I understand uh, the, the meaning uh, again, like I just said, we, we have only really one, the one guy that plays that five spot is the one, as you can imagine, is the one guy that's not allowed to get a defensive rebound and bring the ball up the floor. Um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, when we get a stop, which we want to do, we want to get the ball and go. Obviously, we're looking to advance the ball by the pass, but we want guys that have the ability to just bring the ball up and get us into offense. and. Um, yeah, as much as we want to put pressure on the opponent on the defensive end, we want to constantly be putting pressure them, putting pressure on them uh, on on the offensive side of the ball. So that's how we try to to be competitive, have our competitive advantages is just flying up and down the court uh, for forty minutes. And I imagine that connects really well to the chaos you create on defense. Is that you're going to have a few more unstructured possessions maybe than other teams. So then that playing in the open court philosophy is a part of that that connects all those things together. Yeah, like like a lot of teams, we make no secrets about it. We want to try to create offense through our defense. We want to get stops. We want to get steals. We want to create turnovers, and then, yeah, put pressure on. Get easy baskets. Uh, whether that's you know, we don't we we have a rule. We take the first good shot, which is not maybe a European philosophy. Like if if, if we have an open three with 19 seconds on the shot clock, it's a little bit of that like Grinnell system. Maybe not quite that extreme, but a lot of times teams pull the ball out or whatever, want to run some type of action. If, if we have a good shot, good opportunity right away, we're we going to take it. I love that. And uh, one of the reasons you're different and a bit of an outlier in Europe in terms of how you play. So it's great. Before we dive into the press a little bit, let's just talk about John Patrick and his influence on you and the pressure. He was on episode 108 of the podcast and talked a little bit about the pressure and the player development connection. But really your story is is a bold one in a sense that you left America and college coaching to be able to go overseas and coach in Europe. So John was a big part about that. So talk about both those parts. Yeah. I mean, first off, John, I was really, really fortunate to work under John for, for three seasons uh, here in Ludwigsburg. Uh, I consider him obviously a mentor, but a friend. Um, I think he's one of the best basketball coaches in the world, best basketball mind. You know, I think he, I think if you look around Europe, I think a lot of teams are starting to try to play like, he started in, in, in his times in Guttigan and then here in Ludwigsburg, small ball, fast paced. Um, but yeah, I, I left, I was in college for about 10 seasons. A buddy of mine was working for John here in Ludwigsburg. 
I came over here during the playoffs, didn't know a lot about European basketball, fell in love with it right away. It was almost like, you know, landing on Mars, um, wanted to be a part of this. Uh, he had a job opening, oddly enough, a couple months later, asked me if I wanted to come here and was fortunate enough to come here and, and be here for three years and learn under him and, and now trying to you know, use a lot of the things I learned under him. Obviously, I have to be my, my own person, my own coach, my own philosophies, um, but uh, using a lot of what I learned under him here in Ludwigsburg. Yeah, it's great to hear. And I'm so happy it's working out for you as well with some success there. And uh, fill us in a little bit. Give us an overview of the pressing system, something that we don't often see at the professional level. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, obviously to press, you have to put the ball in the basket. You got to score. That's first and foremost, a lot of, you know, that's getting this habit, uh, especially, you know, a lot you see guys we're in the chicks dig the three ball. Uh, everybody likes the score. Everybody likes the scoring content, the highlights. And a lot of times immediately guys habits are score, get back to half court, pick up your man. So we have to early on get them in the habit of as soon as we score, we're up. You make a three, you get a dunk. We're not running back. You got to be up. The primary focus is to take the ball out of the best ball handler's hands of the other team. So there's a lot of good players out there. As you know, we want to make the weakest ball handler. Usually it's a guard, bring the ball up the floor. Uh, so we're denying the best ball handler. That's the first and foremost. Uh, and then once the ball is in, it's not a zone press. It's not a two, one, two. It's not a run and jump, which we, we do have certain actions where we can get into like a run and jump. But we want to just put pressure and, and stunt off of the other guys. Because a lot of times, Chris, you'll see it all the time. Dudes don't want to handle the ball against pressure. So the team gets the ball in, and you'll see the other three guys on offense. They'll just turn their back and go. And we really just want to be solid on the ball. We don't want to get beat. We actually force the ball to the middle of the floor. Uh, we don't want to get beat up the sideline. But we force weak hand. No problem saying that. So. We try to make guys and you and I'm, I've, I've always been amazed too, at this level of, you know, you see guys that were really good college players, even pros, but they've never been forced to, to use their weak hand. And it's, it's amazing to me. I'm amazed every year. Sometimes we don't even know it till we start scouting particular players. Guys really have problems say it's a heavy right-handed player. Hey, they, they literally can't dribble with their left hand. And, um, that's something that we really try to do. Obviously, at some points, we'll run and jump. Uh, if there's if there's a big, a lot of times teams like to come set ball screens with their with their big guys. We'll we'll hard hedge or trap or something like that with it with a big to try to get the ball out of the ball handler's hands and see if that five man can bring it over. But um, yeah, it's basically just disciplined pressure over forty minutes and just it's wearing the opponent down. We want to try to if you if you make them have to think about this for forty minutes, we we, we believe over time they're going to get tired of, tired of it. And sometimes we've seen it. Teams will just throw in the towel. We're, we're sick of this. <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Let's start with uh, on the ball or off the ball. Is that dependent on where the best handler is? Correct. Like, you know, it, it, let's, let's say we make a free throw and we're on defense now. If the best ball handler is taking the ball out of bounds, we're on the ball and we let them throw it into whoever they want. Now, a lot of times the best ball handler is however their alignment is the guy on the ball our our x whatever x2 x3 whoever they have taken the ball out is not on the ball guarding a lot of times you see someone on the ball doing nothing we call it doing nothing 
he's literally going to turn his back, find the best ball handler, and try to keep the ball from them getting the ball inside to them. That's where it initially starts. And then once the ball gets in, then we go from there. You've referenced on makes. Uh, are you pressing on dead balls as well? Yes. I mean, in theory, uh, Chris, we want to, every time there's a dead ball or the ball is out of bounds on the baseline, we would like to take the ball out. Obviously, uh, you know, we would like to do this every game. Sometimes there is some scouting involved where we'll, we'll, we will get back and play in the half court. But ideally, we want to be uh, a full court pressure team constantly. From studying it over the years, I mean, it does seem like, again, you're, you've said you do trap, but that's not the point. The point is to have constant pressure full court so that they have to make constant decisions. The trapping seems to be more opportunistic. Is that fair? That you meant reference people clear out and now you're coming back off of a trail trap type of trap or they dribble into a situation where it's a trap. Is that more how the traps are happening? Sure. I mean, we, we do have rules like... Um... For instance, a lot of times, not right away in teaching it, but once once we once we get a feel for it, like again, if if a guy throws the ball in and he notices his man's just, it's almost like stealing a base in baseball. If you think you can go, not on the first day, but if you think you can go trap this guy and, and, and our guys in La La Land, we say go. If they throw the ball below the block, a lot of teams they, they come. Almost like if you watch little kids play basketball, they hand the ball off. If that's an that's immediate time to trap. Um, so we do have certain points where we want to trap on the floor. Obviously, it's the same thing. There's coffin corners as well. Guy picks his dribble up around half court. There's eight seconds. That's the other thing where it's an advantage. I don't think we've talked about that in, in FIBA rules. There's eight seconds to get the ball over. We'll get one or two turnovers a game just off of pressure because there's only eight guy fumbles the ball in the backcourt they have trouble getting it in maybe they throw it to their five guy and he's panicking so it's just a cheap way to steal some possessions love it love it and uh you referenced uh forcing the ball middle can you explain the philosophy of forcing it middle because that, that might be a tendency to say okay we're forcing it to more space so talk to us about the philosophy yeah i mean we just we we feel like it a lot of times guys can speed your, like they're fast going up the sideline. So if you push it to the middle, that's where there's more help. There's, there's more help in the middle of the floor. There's less, it's almost like uh, getting rejected going baseline. There's, there's less help. Now you get into rotations. Um, so we want to pour, we, that, that's why we force the ball to the middle in, in the, in the press. And then obviously too, stunning off the ball, you know, guys that are running up the floor, if you just give a little stunt, uh, you're not running with your man. We want to stunt. We want. We don't want to be connected. It's almost like you know, ball you man. You want to be off your man. And stunning is a big, big part of just making that ball handler see more bodies, more hands as he's bringing the ball. And of course, there's going to be pressure on him as well. It's great. I mean, you referenced you're loaded in help, so you're forcing it actually to your help, which is great. The stunting part is connected to your half court defense. It's pretty much the same concept, isn't it, as the full court and the half court? Sure. Like once the ball gets over, we want to, yeah, we're, we're stunting. We, we, we have a, a basic ball screen coverage. Um, it's, I'm sure you've covered it before, like a wall kind of a next type deal. But when you're in this ball screen coverage, you need guys stunting to, to give, to help the helper. And that's the same thing in the press. Um, that's the same type 
uh, uh, philosophy. One thing in the press we like to do, though, is, again, you know, a lot of times teams bring their five guy or, or guy that can't dribble, per se, to, to set pressure release screens. We're going to a lot of times trap. That's a, a trap. If you bring your five and, and we will say, hey, fine, let's see. Now, not not all, but a, a lot of times we'll let's see if this five guy can get the ball and then be chasing, you know, and, and, and pressure guys chasing him from behind. Can he make a play? And a lot a lot of times we force a turnover in that that situation, too. Well, and you reference this, the eight seconds, but it's also a lot of teams in Europe, which you said at the beginning, they li- like to run a lot of false motions, a lot of masking movements, so that you're taking time away from them being able to run their stuff the way they want to run it. And that's a big part of it. Even disrupting and having, say, the five, even if they can handle, are they used to initiating the offense? All those are a big factor, aren't they? Correct. You know, it's 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 funny. T- t- today, I, I, we have a new assistant coach, and we're just kind of showing them some of the actions. And and. and there's really good coaches there like there is in the U S but there's, you know, in our league, there's, there's no such thing as, Hmm, we're going into this game and we think we can out coach this guy. You hear that all the time, like maybe behind closed doors, there's no out coaching guys. Um, you gotta, you know, you gotta do what you can do to, to every game comes down to one or two possessions and a lot of good actions to guard, especially in the half court teams run really good stuff. There's really good players. And one way to eliminate guarding multiple actions, multiple ball screens is, yeah, they come across the half court and there's 13, 12, 11 seconds. Now they got to get into uh, trying to score the basketball instead of guarding a lot of false motions and, and scoring actions. Love it. Uh, what have you found are the most effective ways to teach your defensive pressing system? The most effective way is just holding guys accountable every day. Uh repping it uh because listen, guys, you know, now you say press, guys like to press. I think I think they feed off of it. Once they get a turnover or two, they see, but again, it's, it's habits of just being disciplined. Um, guys want to go for steals. Um, that's, that's something starting tomorrow. We'll do zigzags just to get guys used to guarding on the ball. And even if you do just a simple zigzag, zigzag down the floor, uh, just two guys, the guy on the ball is going to go for the steal. He's going to, he's going to reach, he's going to gamble. And at this level, uh, if you gamble and you miss, you're going to get now, now you're done. And that that's one thing uh, we just constantly um, remind guys, I would say uh, to be just solid. We call it just being solid on defense. And I know it's boring, but that's something we do. We do it. We also have a two on two full court drill that we do two or three times a week. Um, we build it up just like, just like anything you build, we build our, our, our press defense with two on two a lot of times. And we add three on three and so on. Hey, Coach, a brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute, sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you know which players should be taking what kind of shots? An analytics system like Hoopsalytics can help your team make better shot selection decisions. You can track every kind of shot each player takes, where the shots come from, rate the shot quality, track if the shot was contested, and see the results. For example, see which players are taking mid-range floaters and measure the results versus catch-and-shoot jumpers. As an added bonus, Hoopsalytics shot charts are fully interactive, so you can filter by shot distance, shot type, or even specific areas of the floor. Then watch video clips of all those shots or see the points per shot. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S 
dot com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. How important is it to create psychological safety for players when they are pressing in the sense that sometimes you might, you will get hurt, right? By it, as you just referenced. So how important is creating that mindset for your players that it's okay sometimes to get hurt, but the majority of time will win those battles. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, you know, if you, you mean by being hurt, like going for a steal and it hurts you on the, yeah, sometimes the, uh, like again, like if you're you're a player and you you make a decision and the offense can make you wrong, they can make you yeah, wrong well, even if you make the right decision. That's part of no question. Um, Chris, we tell her everyone's going to mess up. Yeah. Uh, if you mess up, if you make a mistake, make it going hard, not indecisive. I mean, obviously, you can't keep messing up. You can't keep making mistakes. You can't keep being undisciplined. But if you do, go full speed. Um, and that's something we do too. We go live every day with this. Uh, you can't, you can't just, um, as you know, want to play this way and never practice practice playing this way. And a lot of times, it's it's stuff we we do a lot of full court every day, um, just to get it in their minds. Uh, and, and and starting tomorrow from practice number one. What are some of the common mistakes players make with the press as you introduce it to them? Um, number one, just going for not being solid on the ball um over you know overrunning the ball um trying to be too aggressive i know it sounds um counterintuitive but guys sometimes are too aggressive in the press all we're pressing no it's a solid press it's a it's a almost let's let the offense make the mistake uh instead of forcing them because you know a lot of times we don't want to run and jump per se you see in college because that's the other thing uh, at, at, at our level, if, if a, most guards can see you coming to run and jump, you're going to get picked apart. So we, we can't let the ball handler or whoever's got the ball see us coming to run and jump. So sometimes guys are too aggressive, uh, especially early on, but we want to be aggressive. You referenced uh, obviously forcing middle and you also referenced forcing weak hand. So uh, a lot of tendency of really good teams is to try and inbound to that weak side of the floor so that they can get their player obviously in space, but obviously going to their dominant hand as well, which mostly would be right hand, right? So when they're on that weak side corner and they're being forced middle, they would be forced middle to their dominant hand. So when does the weak hand rule come into effect? Once you get them to the middle of the floor, you cut them off. Now, like once you have a middle, now we try to sit on that weak hand. You, you initially push them middle, and then once you get them squared up, now we're gonna we're gonna play them. We're gonna sit on that weak hand. Love that. That's such an important cue, you know, for coaches to understand is that yes, you're forcing middle, but at what point now are you controlling that weak hand? And then does that weak hand defense extend into the half court? Do you force weak hand in the half court? Yes, not 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 on day one. On day one, we have a basic coverage we want to teach, but yes, in theory, um, we're we would like to force guys to their to their weekend. Again, it, it, in the half court, we talked about it today as, as a staff. Um, guards are really good nowadays, especially especially going to their strong hand. But if you can keep them going to their weekend, they get less effective. Uh, doesn't mean you can just give them wide open driving lanes, but if you can keep them going to their weekend, they're they're less likely to score and less likely to make passes. Just like they're better going to their strong hand to score, they're better usually going to their strong hand to make passes for other others as well. So that's an, another reason why you want to keep guys to their weekend. 
Love this. And, uh, you know, it's fun at that level. I'm sure you can make a lot of li- little different tweaks to be able to make it more effective against certain teams. You already referenced the best ball handler and how you adapt to that. What are some other things that you would adapt to based on the strengths and weaknesses of your opponent? We can also goes towards or, or, or goes for guys in the post. Not too many teams play through the post anymore. But it's it's not just for point guards, guards. We wanna we wanna force, we wanna make, and it sounds simple, but it's I watch a lot of basketball, as do you. If you can force guys to do what they don't want to do and don't allow them, of course they're gonna get to it at some point during the game. But n- not allowing them to do what they want to do consistently through 40 minutes, then I think the odds of you winning a game are high. Um, obviously we tell our guys all the time. Yeah. Okay. Say you're playing against a good mismatch guy. That's got a good right hook. Okay. Don't let him make it. If he makes it with his left, that's on us, but that's something in the half court we, we work on as well. It's not just for guards. Uh, it's for everybody force guys to do what they don't want to do. So I imagine your scout is more individual player based than, you know, team offense and what they do. I mean, you should probably, you do both, but for what you're trying to do, they really have to understand the individual, don't they? Correct. I mean, again, you know, to try like like you said, we, we I mean, we're playing, <laughs> we play against a lot of high level teams over here. Um, you know, obviously in our league, there's there's two Euro League teams, Euro Cup. I mean, we're a Champions League team, but to give us our, an advantage, um, we want to try to take them out of their actions as much as possible, and 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 by and just just disrupt. It's just disruption. Um, with discipline uh, for 40 minutes. Part of some pressing teams is obviously the flyby concept in terms of a closeout where you're trying to keep them constantly moving and never let them get settled. Is that part of your recovery strategy as well? Using back taps and different types of flyby closeouts to be able to force the ball to continue in movement? A little bit. We want to be good at stunting. That's where the st- we haven't talked so much about stunting, but it's weird unless you have, you know, there's some guys that stunting doesn't bother them, but unless it's just a sniper, a lot of times just a quick peripheral, you know, a guy stunning at them really just gives the player, you know, your, your defensive player time to recover the players. We try not to do flyby because then that just gets you into rotations. I know, I know that's a popular, we want to try to shut down everything, but a lot of times if you fly by guys or, you know, maybe if it's a guy that can really, really shoot it, but if you're flying by a guy that's a 35% shooter, now he's now he's forcing help, kicking out, and now he, somebody's going to end up. The ball's going to get back to that guy that you just flew by. That's our philosophy. So we try not to just run guys off of the line, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. And uh, I know you've referenced stunting as such an important thing. Uh, another important thing is the mentality. So I'm curious, again, what are some mindset things that you need to develop to be able to develop a pressing team to the level that you have? Well, getting back to the word recruit is one thing. I think I think you have to recruit uh, to play like this, uh, get guys that are able to do this. This is why I think when we say we want to play positionless on, on offense, we play positionless on defense. Uh, we have a lot of like-sized guys. Uh, one, one thing that helps with this as well is, you know, we, we're pressuring, we, we try to recruit guys that can move their feet. I had someone one time ask me, would you ever recruit a guy that can't really move their feet? In theory, no. doesn't mean he's not a good basketball player. It just means he doesn't fit our philosophy. 
but it allows you at some points too to just switch on defense. So imagine if you're pressing for whatever, half, half the shot clock, then they get in the half court and you're able to switch. It really it can really bother some teams. And, and that's another way we, we can get an advantage as well. It's great. I love diving deep into this. And you you referenced, obviously, say a deep corner catch on inbound triggers an automatic trap, which makes sense. So if it's in the full court and there's movement up the floor and a player goes to trap, what are some communication cues that you use or trigger cues that you use for players to understand what's happening? Uh, well, if it's um, we, we know if it's this is more personnel based, uh, if it's if it's a guy setting a ball screen if it's a if it's a guy that's a weak handler we, that's more a cue to go um i don't want to say we actually have exact cues but it's more personnel based on who we can go off because maybe if they get the ball it doesn't really bother us as much because they don't want to make a play if that makes sense absolutely and i know a lot of teams that uh you know if you do force it out of the best handler's hands and a weaker handler or a bad handler has it you don't trap the bad handler because you want them to handle it. Is that part of the philosophy or do you like to go after them? No, that's, that's more it. Uh, again, at, at that point, we just want to be solid. It's all about being solid. So now we've done our job almost. If, if uh, we're playing whoever, uh, a guy that's averaging 20 a game, a lot of, see, this is the thing in our league. There's a lot of smaller point guards, uh, small or big, but they, they, they dominate the ball. If you can get the ball out of this one guy's hands and make somebody else beat you, that that that's our kind of philosophy. There's guys, you know, the averaging 20 points a game and seven assists. And if we can get it in, that's a win for us in our in, in our minds. That's win number one. Now you got to have multiple wins in a possession. Uh, obviously, whoever the weaker ball handler can still be a good playmaker, good ball. He's just less likely to make a player. They would rather have it in the other guy's hands. So. You still got to do your job, but then you got to have win number two, and that's just being solid on this guy. Um, doesn't mean like, oh, our job is done once the ball gets out of uh, the best player's hands. What type of analytics are important to evaluating your press? I just said a lot of a lot of teams we play in our league. It's a little bit different in Champions League, uh, but at the BBL, it's it's really. I would say almost half the teams now have like one dominant, just dominant ball handler. And our analytics is get the don't let that guy bring the ball up the floor and we'll be a lot. We have a, we have a chance to be a lot more successful. So you're not charting deflections or anything specific relative to the pressure. We do chart deflections. Obviously, if it, the more deflections, the more the more uh, hands on basketballs, tips and, and stuff like that, that, that. That's those are hustle plays. We do like to chart stuff like this, but um we we would rather instead of charting this, we would just rather count how many times. Uh, I don't want to name names, but uh, it was just call it best player doesn't bring the ball up the floor. That's more something we keep up. Keep yeah, up. and I'm just talking out loud with you, but I love that. That that's such an effective kind of thing to be able to understand and chart for you know your defense because it's again a lot of people think a win in a press is a turnover, but it's not not always a turnover. It's obviously these other factors like non best ball handler brings up the ball. That's a win. Sure. Hey, no, 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 no question. That, that, that's win number one. You could almost say you need, we do say this, we need three wins in a possession, especially when we're pressing. <laughs> we need uh, first win, best player doesn't bring the ball up the floor, best ball handler, playmaker. Uh, win two is 
obviously get the ball under control and then win three is finish the finish the play with a or the possession with a stop. And if we we can do that, I know I know back in the day, or I don't know if teams still chart this, but they used to call them turkeys or whatever. Three consecutive non-scoring possessions. If you get seven of those, but but we think if we can get uh, seven wins like this, then we our our chances go up as well. I love that. That's that's such great uh, connection to kind of the uh, the desired outcome of the possession. That's great. And then another part of pressing is obviously potentially fouling. So how do you mitigate the risk of fouls? Yeah, that's that's another interesting. You're gonna you're gonna watch in the people World Cup here in the next couple of weeks. You get five per quarter. You know, a lot of times, you know, after five, the team gets. So if you foul five times with seven minutes left to go in the quarter, every foul, the, the team is going to the free throw line and shooting two free throws. Now, obviously, that's not good. You're getting in foul trouble, but it's it's really you know when pressing, you want to be disciplined. You want to play without fouling when you can. But it's always great if there's a timeout or a dead ball and there's four minutes left to go in the quarter and you got one team foul. Um, you can be extra aggressive at that point. And obviously, you always want to use your fouls, which is something that you have to teach, especially Americans coming over and playing this style. They don't understand it sometimes. Um, you know, there's two team fouls and there's two minutes on the clock. Uh, use a foul, especially if a team has a scoring opportunity because the ball gets taken out and then they got to run offense again. So that's always something that you have to teach, especially in the preseason, especially uh, amongst other things, young, young American players coming over to play for the first time. I love the nuances of FIBA. I mean, it just, it just seems to make sense. Doesn't it? And just uh, some of those simple things, especially wiping out fouls after 10 minutes and starting anew. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's, I think players that come over that it's, it's considered selfish and they don't understand it, but like not using a foul when you have team fouls to give, you got to teach them that like, that's okay. Obviously there's time and time and score and time and place for everything. But if it's early in the game, especially you, you always see guys giving a foul and taking a foul, but that's something uh, players have to learn to do. You reference this as mainly a full court type of pressure defense, but are there times that you'll uh, pick up at half or three quarter or you know, pressure from the sideline, different things that you'll do. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's always time and score too. Um, if you have, if you have somebody you need in the game or you're in foul trouble, maybe you're, you're not as, as of aggressive um, in an ideal world, you're never in foul trouble and you always press, but there are times when, yeah, we, we back off a little bit. There are some teams that they are pretty good against the press and so maybe not as good in the half court, it's always tough, as you know, uh, if you can always, we, we, every coach says it, I believe it's universal. If we can get back and, and let them play if, if, against our set, uh, set defense, we're going to be okay. Um, so there are times where we back it off, but not often. Can you connect for us the value of pressing and transition defense and how those two things go together? Yeah, I mean, obviously, pressing is is something you know. No, nobody likes to be pressured. I, 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 I even the best, and I, I obviously the best players in the world are in the NBA uh, at the highest level. But you, you even see the guy. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, Jose Alvarado. He became it's. <laughs> Jose Alvarado is is a guy. Don't get me wrong. I love what he does. You see him bothering guys like Chris Paul, and they don't like it. But Jose Alvarado over here kind of be. It's what we do. We try to disrupt. We try to get after guys. 
but yeah, it, it takes away from that transition defense. If you're not, if now the press, if you're not disciplined can also kill your transition defense. If you've got guys going, that's why it's very important when you are a pressing team uh, like us to, to be disciplined in the press, because if you're not, like you said, I think earlier, uh, you can get killed <laughs> if you're being over aggressive and, you know, you're over aggressive a numerous amount of times, you're going to give up some type of open shot in the half court transition. So you're limiting transition for your opponent. Obviously, they're playing out of chaos a little bit more. And, uh, you know, the late clock generally has the situations that they're going to face. So what are some of the things that you find toughest to be able to defend in the full court pressure? Well, just a great ball handler. (laughs) Yeah, well, I referenced earlier and this is, you know, the challenge. There are some really, really small when I say small, like we're the one, you know, one league, I think, in Europe where the small guard, you know, Thomas Isola, who just left to go to Paris. So I'm, I'm sure you've had him on your show. I believe you yeah. have. I believe I've listened yeah. to him. He kind of started the small guard um, trend. You know, I, I think JP started the the pressing small ball. Thomas uh, started the the, <laughs> the small guard trend over here. So now you got guards, Chris, that are just jets, guys that are five seven, five eight, and some of them are getting chances at Euro League now, and they're really tough to guard. Yeah, I, I know it goes with that. Those guys are – that's sometimes when we back off a little bit, when you're asking, like, are there times when you back off? Yeah, if you play, if you play a guy that's as fast as some of the guys we play, like a TJ Schwartz, or there's a guy that I know this year is going to be in our league. I don't want to name his name. Um, he's coming from a smaller league. This guy is, is, is a freaking water bug. It's challenging. It's challenging when you play against just pure speed. But, again – a lot of times, if you can get guys under control, get them in front of you, square them up, and then get them to their weak hand, a lot of these guards just have really, really big trouble. But playing against super fast guards, it's tough to press. Coach, I love all this pressing talk. I, I want to come back to something you referenced earlier, and that's the wall defense, a uh, ball screen defensive coverage. Can you explain that for us? So basically, the wall, it, depending on, you know, you're going to have to use your imagination here. So imagine you're going to a two side ball screen. So you come down the floor, which is called a drag screen, uh, and you're going to the two side corner field on the ball side. Your wall would be you got the the X1 on the ball. You have your X5. We'll just say the ball screen is being set. Drag screen is being set by a center. Your wall ball screen defense is the guy guarding the next offensive player, usually out free throw line extended, but usually it's a little bit more spaced higher in Europe. So he's he's deterring the ball handler, basically. The next ball screen defense is more what the Spanish do, where like the wall guy that I'm talking about right now will actually take the ball handler and the guy on the ball will run to that opposite corner. And that's what you see a lot of Spanish teams do in the next ball screen defense, where we don't do that and where stunting comes in our wall guy has got to be up to the wall, up to the level of the ball screen, because if he's below the level of the ball screen, then he is doing nothing. He's doing he's actually not guarding his man and he's not deterring the ball handler from getting downhill. But he wants to be there early in the wall, high, and with his boxer's feet. We call it boxer's feet, whereas he can't have his feet just stuck in mud because if that guard whips the ball over to the next guy. He's dead. Now, this is where stunting takes place. That guy 
that's guarding the guard in the two side corner has to be able to stunt high and give the guy in the wall time to recover back to his man. And that's something we play against all year long. Teams do things to try to uh, mess up, mess it up. And they do. There's really good coaches and they there's, but it's something we also, you know, we don't always play our wall ball screen coverage. We have to mix it up because if you just constantly play this ball screen coverage, teams are going to just fry you. Um, so you have to give them different looks, but that is our, our, our basic coverage. That's um, awesome. And uh, we've talked about stunting a lot. So, so give us an idea of kind of what you're teaching specifically in terms of the stunt. Uh, is it, you know, people sometimes say we want to avoid a two-way closeout, but I'm seeing a lot more in Europe, a lot more aggressive in terms of that initial attack to try and deter the ball or deter the movement. Yeah, well, in order to be a good stunner, you have to be in good position, uh, Chris. Like if <laughs> if you're stunting, like for example, let's just stay with this picture just for the sake of it. You know, you're coming down the, on the left-hand side of the floor going to the two side. That stunt guy, let's just say the three man's in that far right corner. If if he is too far over to the basket and your wall guy is in the wall and they snap that ball quickly, well, then if he stunts, he's doing nothing because essentially he's too low. Stunting has to, your positioning has to be excellent. And the better positioning you have, the better stunter you're going to have. So I think a lot of times you have to make sure your positioning is good on defense or your stunts are just like, like air, they're doing nothing. Um, So in that, in this particular picture, you know, that X3 who's stunting, if he's not in the right position, well, two things can happen. Uh, X, we'll, we'll just call it the four man for all intents and purposes on offense, the four man can have a catch and shoot situation or he got, he has a catch and drive situation because he's so low. So this is where stunting uh, becomes really important. But again, if he's not in good position, his stunt is, he could have an excellent stunt from the block and he's going to be doing nothing. Josh, I think you're uniquely positioned to give some advice to, uh, you know, American coaches in particular, Canadian coaches, whatever it may be, coaches not from Europe that go coach in Europe. And you've experienced it from, you know, an assistant coach, a head coach's perspective. And I'm just wondering what advice you have to coaches that maybe are considering that. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, uh, Chris, I, I think for, for me personally, every every person's different. Everybody has their own situation um, privately. But for me, I left college basketball because it was something I, I just felt like I wanted to do. It's been the best decision I've made in my professional career. Um, I I would do it all over again. But, you know, coaching over in Europe is different. You know, I I tell a lot of my friends who ask, you know, about it, it sounds it sounds good at the surface. But, you know, it's you're a little bit out on an island in Europe. I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love my job. But, you know, there's I think a lot of times in the U.S. coaches, you know, you have your you have a little bit more security. Guys are getting five and six year deals. It doesn't work that way over here. Again, I wouldn't deter anybody from coming over here. I think if you have the means to do it, I just coaching, as you know, no matter where you're at in the world, it, it is very uh, demanding and it's and there's not a lot of security, whether you're coaching in the U.S. or in Asia. But in Europe, you you, you really got to um, know what you're getting yourself into. But I would encourage anybody that loves basketball to come over here. I think it's the it's basketball in its purest form. I mean, I enjoy watching college. I enjoy watching the NBA. But uh, if you ask me which one I prefer watching, it's it's Euro League, high level European basketball, all day, every day. 
I love that. I love your experience, uh, you know, in Europe and just in basketball in general. You have such a, such a love for the game. And I got to ask, do you think your system of pressing could work in the NBA? It's an interesting question. I, I, it's hard to, to know for sure because no one's ever really done it. Um, obviously, in the NBA, they have the, the, the three seconds in the half court, which is geared for the offense. I do think if you, I'm going to say it, recruited a specific way in the NBA, I think it could be done. Um, obviously, there's really good players. Um, there's the best players in the world are in the NBA. But I do think if you got the right guys and you sold them on pressing, uh, again, I don't know if you're going to get James Harden pressing, um, the superstars pressing, but if you, you'd have to recruit and, 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 and scout and, and have a specific type of, of roster to do it. But basket, what do they always say? Basketball is basketball. And, um, why not? I would love to see it. It would be a good, uh, it'd be a good project to, uh, to, to see. It would be a lot of fun. And uh, we're seeing more like diversity in terms of the half court zones and then different types of core court pressure and different things like that from coach coaches like Nick nurse and Eric Spolster and stuff. So someday we'll see it come back in the yeah. NBA. That'll be fun. Josh, I can't thank you enough. Just wonderful. It's awesome to hear about your journey and, and uh, thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us as well. Chris. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Get the best instructional coaching with immersionvideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then immersionvideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Cassio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more. Try ImmersionVideos.com today and become an even better coach. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at BasketballImmersion.com newsletter.